Hey everybody, welcome to Heterodox Americana. This is a show about thinking outside the box and examining the conventional wisdom that informs how we think and shapes how we see the world around us. The question that we're ultimately trying to get at here is, how do our unexamined ideas impact our ability to thrive as human beings? And it's our intention to unpack some of these ideas, take a fresh heterodox perspective that hopefully leads us somewhere new. My name is Raphael Freeman, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Angie Backus, another one of your hosts. You know, today, even before we, we kick off, I, I just want to acknowledge that this is actually our 10th episode, uh, which feels super cool as a milestone. It does. Um, and yeah, I certainly want to thank everyone who is still listening. And, you know, because launch is one thing, right? Right. Launch and whole world is there and all your friends and exciting it's uh yeah it's exciting but uh having reached this milestone um feel feels good does thank you so you know as a show where we're we're trying to examine ideas and um think about what it means to think outside of a particular paradigm or outside of a box i think it's also important to understand how people get trapped in their their way of thinking like how people stay in their box yeah uh and and i think i'm gonna pose this to you as a question how, how do you know why is it that people mm-hmm. get kind of stuck in in one mode of thinking and why do they not see i don't know the kind of plurality of, of ways of being yeah yeah that's a great question i think um as a psychotherapist i encounter this quite often uh you know, one of the things that I, I have mentioned to my clients often is um, this kind of picture of what I see in terms of looking through a keyhole. So if you look through a keyhole, you see a very small um, space. Like it's a, it's, a sh- it's a very soft and small area that right. you're kind of observing. And I think oftentimes this is how we get stuck in our stories in life. We're looking at these moments or this narrative that we've told ourselves over and over and over again. We don't even really know that this is the story that's carried us through. They've never really examined it because if we're looking through a keyhole, we're seeing something small. But if we zoom out, and this is why I tell my clients, zoom out. Go out, 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 and see a bigger picture. Right. Um, you know, if we look in these little small ways at, at our life story, we can always find it's, called, it's confirmation bias, right? It's we can find Me, evidence. Well, we can find the evidence that we can find all these ways to confirm our bias. So if we're these people that wake up and say, gosh, darn it, you know, by five o'clock. Five million things have happened to me today that are so bad. Why, why, why does this keep happening? Like, 8 o'clock this happened, 12 o'clock th- this happened. By the time I get to 5 o'clock, all these things have happened. Why? Why is it always me that gets, like, this drudgery of this huge events of the day? Um, and we can find ways in our confirmation bias to get evidence to support that idea. Um, but I've, I've mentioned to my clients before, this is how we kind of work through this, is what... It, what is that narrative? You're supporting a narrative by this evidence. You can think of so many things that support this negative story. But if we look, if we go to another story, we turn it into something else. Like, you know, let's just say positive, for example. We could find evidence to support that as well. That's also 
a confirmation bias. And we can find so many things to but, support but one that a works different for story. You. Yeah. Say it again. I said, but one that works for you. One that works for you. Absolutely. And, you know, I think part of that is um, connecting ourselves to the story that doesn't just confirm all the things that take us in a particular direction away from something good or positive. Not that I'm trying to say, hey, let's just like, you know, let's find the silver lining. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying really, truly look outside yourself. Look outside that keyhole. Find the ways of which you can support your story in a different way because you can. But you've, if you've never moved over there, you'll never know. When you say support your story in a, in a different way, what, what do you mean? So, you know, if we look at a negative confirmation bias, if there if there's um, there are people out there that say, you know, I'm the I'm the person that all these things, you know, usually happen. Why why does all why do all these things pile up for me? Um, they're looking for ways to support that story. If they create a new story, you know, um, good things can happen to me every day. There are things that are happening to me of which. Perhaps I don't even understand the opportunity that's af- afoot. Or maybe there are these beautiful things that happen where I just even walked out of my door and I saw the most beautiful cloud formation and these beautiful trees that are turning red and green. And um, I get to look at that. I know, you know, I'm not trying, again, <laughs> trying to say, so here's all of the silver lining, but it can be that simple. It really can. It can be looking for the things that create the positive story instead of looking for the things that create the negative story. Yeah, you know, this framing around our cognitive biases is, uh, you know, I think it's an important one. And I do think it has a lot to do with, with how we see the world and how we construct our model of the world. Uh, and by model of the world, I just mean that so none of us really see the world as it actually is, mm-hmm. uh, even though I think most of us think that we do. Um, but we we kind of construct these models. Um, mm-hmm. So let me let me make this argument. Yeah. This is not necessarily uh, obvious or straightforward. Sure. Um, there are so much data that we're taking in. Right. Through our eyes. And, you know, if you ever hear of a story of people, they get like an eye implant later in life. Mm -hmm. Uh, They can't. And they were like born blind or went blind very early. uh, And now they have eyes that see. They can't necessarily make sense out of all the data because your brain learns over time what to pay attention to and what not to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And so we never see all the colors. We never see all the things that are moving. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are never taking in all the information. Your brain has to sort out what information is relevant, what information is not relevant. And so we construct these models of the world. And because they're just models, uh, we have all these cognitive biases that plague our models, like prevent us from, from seeing in a particular kind of way. One of the things that I tend to do with clients, uh, a good amount is to, and anyone listening can do the same thing, uh, is to look around the room and observe all of the objects that are red or reddish in your environment. Mm-hmm. Everything that's kind of orangish to reddish, maybe pink, but just look around the room slowly and take in everything that you see that is red. Okay. And... After you've done that, you kind of close your eyes, and then you try to name everything that you saw that was blue. Oh. 
And what you'll find is that because your brain was sorting for one sure. part of one, you know, basic type of information, of that it blotted out this other type of information, and you have a much poorer ability to, to kind of recall wow. the blue thing. That's a great example. Uh, and yeah. so, yeah, I think the, these cognitive biases, I mean, that's a simple trick, but I, I think no, they, great. they have a big you know, impact on, on what we end up seeing. They do. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about how people tend to get trapped in their thinking. Um, and you were describing some ways of which you could kind of understand this in a very visceral or real way. Can you? talk about that a little bit yeah for one it's hard and when i say it's hard i mean um you know on my circuitous path of trying to uh escape a a tough neighborhood uh low income all that stuff uh it's actually hard I, i watched a lot of people um including myself like i've made some mistakes uh none of those were you know, kind of game changer, fatal mistakes. But could have been maybe? Um, I've made some mistakes that led to serious setbacks. Okay. Uh, I mean, early on, 17-year-old, 18-year-old sure. mistakes that, you know, I spent a decade or so uh, fixing. But there are other people who, um, you know, say you are 14 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I have a person in mind who... You know, didn't 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 have great uh, parental structure. Uh, in fact, my mother would, um, y- you know, their house was kind of connected to my backyard, and so they would come down the hill, and uh, my mother would give them like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or bologna sandwiches, just whatever it took to to keep them fed. Um, and one of the kids, by the time he was fifteen. Uh, 14, 15, uh, essentially he got tired of being hungry. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, w- with, uh, with this kind of corroded, you know, parental structure, I think he thought his best bet was to sell drugs. Right? Sure. So every summer there's this effort to, to try to get a job, right? You got to get working papers from the city. And I, I can tell you as a person who was never able to get a job anywhere in the city, um, being 15 year old and getting a job in the city is not nearly as easy um, as one might think. Working papers are needed before 16, right? Before, yeah, I think 16. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, that this kid, he thought that his best option for eating um, was, to sell, was to sell drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did okay at it, right? He <laughs> became a, a name in the neighborhood, never made a fortune, um, but made enough to feed himself mm-hmm. and his brother mm-hmm. and his sister. And I think there was a female cousin roughly their age who also lived there as right. well. Um and I don't know, he was probably, so he stuck with it a while. Uh, and started around 14 or 15? I think he was 15. Okay. Um, but at some point, uh, before, so it must it had to have been after 18, uh, because he's legally an adult then. Um, but ended up in a situation with enough drugs in the wrong place, and, you know, was arrested and spent a, you know, a good chunk of his life. 
um, you know, 10 years or so in mm-hmm. prison. So the question is, what do you do when you are 28 and you have 10 years of no experience? Right. Um, you're not well educated anyway because you started selling drugs when you're 15. Right. Um, what do you do when you have the education of a 15 year old and you are 28 years old uh, and you are reentering, um, you know, the po- you know the population at large? Um, this is a story of so many people. Sure, I can almost feel it. Like I can feel how stuck that must have. I mean, what are you going to do at 15? You're getting what you need. And by the time you're 28, 28, where do you go from there? I can just, I can feel it inside. Right. In so many ways, it's not unique. I mean, like, they write shows about this. It just so happens that, I, you know, I know this person. And m- many people like that. But it's a, it's a reality. Mm-hmm. But you can make one mistake. I mean, I guess the only reason I brought this up is that you can make one mistake when you're 15 and end up paying for it, um, I don't know, ostensibly, of course. you know, the rest of your life. Um, in fact, here's a little closer to home. Um, for me, at least, my brother was um, my brother was 16 when he got uh, a settlement um, that had to do with uh, like an accident, and somehow or another, he ended up with I think close to seventy thousand mm-hmm. dollars. But he's just, you know, and I probably... At 16 years old? Yeah. Probably what should have happened is my mother um, could have put it in the trust or something like that. But, you know, whatever. It was his money. Mm-hmm. And so he got the money. Uh, with $70,000, uh, he ended up with uh, a nice car that, you know, at 16 years old, all the girls in the neighborhood loved it. Uh, he, he had like leather, um, like leather pants, like a leather suit. Cause it was like, it was like the eighties and Eddie, Eddie Murphy was popular <laughs> and you know what I mean? Uh, so he had a I green, can just see that he had a green leather, leather yeah. suit mm-hmm. and he had uh, a white leather suit mm-hmm. and one of them had like, um, like goose feathers in the pants. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine anything hotter, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, you're leather clad and you got a, a rad you know, yellow motorcycle and you got a cool kitted out car and every 16, 17, 18, 19 year old girl was, you know, they wanted to be next to him. Sure. And so, you know, at that age, he's living the life. Um, All the things at that age that are important, he was fulfilling. Yes. Everything that's important to a young boy who is 17 years old, you know, 16, 17, 18, he was living the life of a rock star. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and he, you know, he paid a rock star's life too. Um, certainly ended up with children way sooner than he intended. Um, but also, you know, there's this other part that happens when, um, you get what you want too quickly. And this happens with actors who start young. This happens with rock stars is at some point that fast life is less fulfilling. Yeah. Drugs are immediately available. And then you start down this road that is, um, I don't know. So certainly that, that's, that's the road that he took. Sure. Um, and, you know, as these family stories tend to go, his story is intimately interwoven with my own. But to be sure, you know, at 16, he had already formed a model of the world. He had already right. 
formed his ideas of what the world could be. Mm-hmm. And as they began to narrow, and again, the drugs helped a tremendous amount in terms of narrowing of the possibilities. Yeah. But as his world began to narrow, uh, by the time he was able to escape, um, I mean, he couldn't see anything else. Right. It's the keyhole, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it sounds like his story got going so early and that he was stuck in it. And I think from what I'm hearing you say, it's still the story that perhaps is what he's doing today, right? Is it still the same story? Uh, it's a, it's an Similar? even narrower version. Even narrower. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you this. Um, how how did you not get stuck in a story? Or did you? And then did you come out? Like, what what was it? What was it like for you? Yeah, so that that's actually a hard question for me to answer. Um, I mean, hard in an emotional kind of way, because I think I have a little survivor's guilt around it. Mm-hmm. And still being in a fair amount of contact with uh, the people with whom I grew up, who grew up where I grew up, uh, and having a window into their lives. Um, yeah, it, it's a little... I get to see how hard it. I, mean, I know how hard it, it it was, but I still get to see how hard it is and what it takes to to escape, what it takes to get out. Yeah, and it's tough. I mean, there's just there are enough factors. Um, it's actually it's actually really tough. Um, I think people who come from my demographic, for example, who make it into the middle class, it's about four percent. Wow. Um, and so you know the the odds are definitely stacked uh, against us. But to answer your question, um, some part of it was a feeling that had, um, so uh, in some ways I got lucky, right? Uh, And I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, There was something that was always, I was not able to put my finger on something that was wrong. Okay. Um, Something you felt wrong in your life? Something that I felt that was like, so I've had a few opportunities to take jobs that were just just for the money. Okay. Uh, and uh, there, there was something that felt kind of wrong, sensually wrong about it. And one of those was a pretty good job. It was like $80,000 a year, company car, a chance to move to Germany or any other part of the corporation after two years. But I didn't want to do that job. Yeah. Um. And while I knew people who would pursue money just for the sake of it, just for its own sake, um, you know, do you remember the Matrix where Neil was like, uh, Morpheus asks Neil, you know, there's something wrong and you can't put your finger on it? Yeah. That's kind of how it was for me. I knew that there was something wrong with just the taking this job, but I also knew that there was something wrong in my life and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Uh. Uh-huh. Uh, there was something that was missing, and believe me, I tried to fill that void with loads of things. Sure. Um, but none of it worked. And eventually, I stumbled onto a mentor. A mentor, and by mentor, I mean like a, an internet mentor, like a YouTube mentor. And the name is. Um, Do you feel comfortable sharing? Uh, I'll save that for a later part. Okay. Uh, but he, um, you know, he had this saying. He said. If you want the things in your life to change, you have to change the things in your life. Ah. And, you know, by this time, you know, I had a job. I was fine with my job. Um, I was making enough money. I had the material trappings that I wanted. 
I had traveled a good amount. Um, and I st- still felt unfulfilled. Mm. Uh, and so the, the ways that I thought I would get this fulfillment um, didn't work. Rafael, can I ask you, how did you know, like, what were the signs that you felt unfulfilled? What was happening? Well, say, for example, um, like, I've liked Volvo for, or, you know, most of my life. Not Volvo now. Not the kind of new Volvo. You're talking about a car. But, it, yeah, everyone knows what a Volvo is, right? Not everyone. Go ahead. Uh, but the old Volvos, uh, when Volvo was still Swedish, uh, when it was still boxy, um, before Ford came in, um, Volvo had it. So I, I, I'd always wanted a Volvo. And I imagine that, you know, owning this car would make my life amazing. Because you got a Volvo? Because I got a Volvo. There are not a lot of cars that I feel that way about. Uh, Porsche is one of them. Uh, Ferrari, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I still feel right now that if I got a Ferrari, I don't know, things might be different. <laughs> um, but if I learned anything from this Volvo, uh, you know, incident, uh, it did change for a little while, mm-hmm. and then um, then it then it was back to where it was, uh, and I didn't feel great about it anymore. So you got the Volvo. It changed. For a little while as, wow, I, I got this amazing thing. I'm so happy. Basically, my life didn't change. Well, but that was the initial feeling and then right. yeah, no, things leveled off. Things leveled off. It became what it was. And um, so, you know, the same thing happened with, I think, oh, once I go to Switzerland or once I go to Spain or France or whatever. So you know, I spent some time traveling and the Caribbean and, you know, Latin America and Europe. And, you know, there wasn't some sense that mm-hmm. I, I was still in the matrix. I was still trying to figure out right. how to make my life better. So this is how you knew that you weren't, this is the understanding of knowing that you weren't so fulfilled. Is like all the things that you thought were going to be fulfilling eventually leveled out and you didn't have that amazing feeling anymore. Well, yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't the key. Okay. So... You know, when, when this mentor said that if you want the things in your life to change, you have to change the things in your life, it just resonated. Mm. Uh, it wasn't necessarily the most profound thing. And there are similar catchphrases that people say that, I mean, we've heard them all before. One goes something like, uh, if you do the same thing over and over and you expect a different outcome, that's a definition of insanity. insanity yeah. Another one is, uh, if nothing changes, then nothing, nothing changes. changes. And so it wasn't like the idea was new, right? Um, but it was just the way that he put it. Mm. I did want things in my life to change. And so the notion that I might have to change yeah. things in my life, I was like, oh. Um, and then the, the next question was, what do I change? Yeah. And I didn't know, but now I understood a, a fundamental truth that something had to change. And it was then that I, I started looking in a different direction. Wow. Uh, what a story. So... I don't know if you can take us to the different direction. Can you? Uh, thankfully, I mean, this, this came with some, some help. Uh, there was like a list of books. Uh, you know, one of the problems when, uh, when you're young and they're like, read, read, read. Uh, you know, when if you, you want to be a leader. Right. You got to be a reader. <laughs> um, but I didn't know what to read. Like, was it the Song of Solomon? Was that going to set me free? Mm-hmm. Um, was it Macbeth? 
uh, I don't know, I had Rand Macbeth and uh, either way, I mean, I can get lost in titles, sure. but that, that it wasn't those books. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, there was another set of books and he specifically said, read these books in this order. This mentor said this. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was really through that process that things started to, um, that I started to be able to unpack my own model of the world. That some of my assumptions, the things that I assumed were true, uh, I saw that they, they weren't true. Uh, and that the world was really, I'll tell you what, there was a breakthrough moment for me. It was both painful and um, and freeing at the same time. Um, even though I was sort of kind of stuck, um, not necessarily in, in a financial way, but I, I was stuck in my life, hmm. that I was essentially living the life that was the result of the decisions that I had made. Yeah. Right? Um, and that doesn't mean that there weren't systematic or structural things that made it harder. Sure, it was harder. Um, but I think the under... You know, the ability to look at my decisions and their outcomes, their effects in my life. Uh, I liken it to walking through a, a plate glass and then having the, the plate glass just cut you to shreds. Oh. Uh, because it was it was painful to have to look at me being in my circumstances as really a reflection of so many of the decisions that I had made. Right. Like I, I you did this. Like I, I, I did that. You came to this conclusion. Well, I had also made these decisions. But you came to the conclusion that the place that you were in, wherever you right. were at this time, right. that was I, because that I did of, that. The, of the decisions that you had made. But at the same time, it was also freeing. I was like, well, if that's the case, uh-huh. then I, I'm actually not it. stuck. I can do some you different do things. things yeah. um, and so also in that moment, I, w- I was liberated. Hmm. And um, Did you feel that, Raphael? Did you like feel free? Yeah. At that moment, like knowing that Absolutely. the decisions that you made got you where you were, but there were decisions that you could make that you could change your life. Absolutely. Hmm. And? And I, that, I think that was the turning point. I um, I started to, you know, have a much clearer sense of the connection between, so, you know, I, I guess... You know, there's a lot of a lottery mentality, right? And I, I think a lot of people lottery. Yeah, like people like if mm-hmm. I can only win it, hit, hit the lottery. Yeah, then my life will be blank. Sure. Um, and that lottery thinking, you know, it comes out in a lot of ways. But essentially, what people are doing is they're wishing on a star and saying, "Hey, there's this thing out there in my, you know, in the world that I would love." There's a way of being in my life that I would love. And I have no idea how to get there. Mm-hmm. I have no idea how to even go in that direction. Um, and, you know, as, as a coach, I, I've asked people this a, a lot. One of the questions that, you know, was like, you know, what stops you? But how do, how do you get, what's the path? Yeah. Um, well, I would even think that it's true. I have no idea to, how to get there, but. There's also the mentality of there's no possible way I could get there except for this luck of the draw. Sure. I mean, there's no possible way because they don't know a way right, to get right, there. Right, right, right. But that's a thinking, right? There's there's no way. Not for me. So I, I don't think it's quite that. So he, here's why. If you were to ask them, you know, is there anyone else who's gotten there? Mm-hmm. They'll say, sure, but 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think it boils down to this idea of luck, but luck did it. Um, or sure, but you know, this person was born into right. like, they have better circumstances right. or right. more culture, opportunity. Or, exactly. Yeah. And our culture doesn't help. We have a culture that worships talent. Um, we love to hear the story. So no one, no one hears the stories of practice. In fact, Ellen Iverson was nearly berated in the media for for having a whole um, kind of diatribe about practice. Uh, but practice is is unattractive. We don't want to talk about the work that goes into something. What we really like is the complete outcome. We like the finished product at the end. Right, looking at Al- Alan Iverson and saying he's an amazing basketball player because he's just so good at his craft. Right. It's Instead the- of saying, wow, he probably, you know, put hours and hours and hours and hours into practice to get there. Correct. And, you know, some of the best amongst us, you know, people like Michael Jordan, they'll talk about the work that they put in. They'll talk about how many, you know, free throws that they've taken. They talk about the practice. Mm-hmm. But that's not what's that's not what's glorious, right? What's glorious is Instagram and, you know, here are these pictures and this is how I got famous overnight. Like, this is a, a, a culture sure. that worships talent. Um, so, but anyway, the, the part that was freeing is that I, for the first time, understood that my outcomes are directly connected to my inputs. Uh, and, and for me, that was the most transformative kind of realization that all, all of my outcomes are connected to what I put in. So it's not a fluke. It's not just a game of luck. It's not a fluke. It's, it's not the not lottery. It's not talent. It's not if somebody notices you. It's actually the input-output. It really is the work. That's amazing. Um, you know, it, it, it's funny because agriculture is in some way mm. the real-life manifestation totally, of this. Totally, yeah. Um, which is why so many cultures... I love you, that. Right? Yeah. Um, but you have all these agricultural metaphors, I think, for exactly that reason. Definitely. Uh, Reaping and sowing. Exactly. Planting and reaping. Right. Yeah. So that's the... Um, and there's no way around it, right? You till the soil, you prepare the soil, you plant the seed, you work the seed. It grows, it blossoms, it becomes fruit. It's There's so many stages to get to before you actually get whatever it is that it's supposed to produce. Right. Yeah. No. There's. Uh, I think people think there's a way around it. Hence the. the you know. The Instagram famous. Um, but. You know. There's a sad reality in it. I. So one of the things I say is that. Um, that the windfall always pre- precedes the downfall. And sometimes we do have a windfall. Right. Sometimes we do win the lottery or get you know famous overnight. But if you don't have the internal principles to guide you, if you get famous on something that you don't, you didn't really. You don't really understand how it works. Or let's say you get famous on your looks. Um, something that you didn't achieve, per se. Um, then at some point, it's going to come crashing down, uh, either on the outside, like the money might go away, or um, it's going to destroy you from the inside. So I want to bring it back to a personal narrative. Um You know, you were talking earlier about your brother being trapped in a narrative so early. I don't under, how do we get past a narrative that we have believed forever? And how do we even know that we're trapped in a narrative? So there there are two aspects to that question that, and I I think that that's an important thing to look at, right? This this one part, uh, how do we know that we're trapped? Yeah. 
that is actually the sticker, right? That's that's the part that is tough because it, it's hard to know. It's the keyhole. It's the, yeah, I mean, it, it's our, our models are so, I, I, you know, again, like I said earlier, I don't think most of us understand that we're actually working off of a model. Mm-hmm. And so even the information, so something like knowing what a, so here's some research driven stuff. Knowing a partic- how a particular cognitive bias works mm-hmm. helps us to not succumb to that bias. Yeah. So sometimes even just knowing how this one thing works is sufficient to help break the spell that it, that it has over us. But that doesn't really, you know, that doesn't really get to the heart because that, you know, what if you don't have, yeah. you know, what if no one ever told you that no these are the yep. 26 most popular cognitive biases? Uh, how do you know that you are um, trapped? Yeah, kind of trapped in your own thinking. And honestly, I don't, I don't know if you do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some people who I think are naturally curious. Actually, I think people are curious, right? At birth, babies are curious, uh, and certainly some babies are more curious than others. But people are really curious at that stage. But not everyone takes that curiosity into adulthood. And if you're okay, like if your circumstances are okay, or even if your circumstances are not okay, the ability to, to ask yourself the types of questions of like, one, can this be better? Uh, how do I make it better? Is it doable? You know, the ability to see past your own model of the world is next to impossible if you don't understand that you're working from a model of the world. Right. If you understand it's a model, then you can at least kind right. of deconstruct the model. But if you think that the world, the way you perceive it, mm-hmm. is the actual world, then there's no distance between your perception and the truth, the yeah. truth for you. Right. Which is, uh, that's its own truth. That is the trap. Yeah. So I, I think it's extremely hard to, to move past that. It is. Um, but if you are fortunate enough to perceive your model, or, or if you're fortunate enough to, to understand uh, or to have enough curiosity that something else can be done, then getting past it is, um, that part is much easier. Mm-hmm. Can you say more? Yeah. I, so getting past a narrative that you have believed for so long, um, one, you have to want to. Um, and that could either come about like you, you either want something more out of life or you want more of something or you want relief from a particular kind of suffering. Mm-hmm. But in order to kind of get past uh, a narrative that you've had for so long, you have to want to. You have to want to change your circumstances, kind of like I did with, with uh, you know, if you want the things in your life to change, you have to change things in your life. You have to, that is part of the process. And I think the other part that is really critical is that you have to come to some understanding that your narrative is not true. Um, the, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think this is what's difficult sometimes because the story that we tell ourselves, that's an internal process. And I think mostly what I've noted is that people start to do this external change. Like, if only this were change, if only they would love me more, or if only I would get the best job, or if I would get more money. So this, it's instead of changing their story internally, they think that the process of change is going to be external. I see what you're saying. Uh, I don't necessarily think those things are disconnected, but I do see the problem. So you're, you're going towards a problem. Here, here's what I would say about that. 
if you change one thing externally, uh, what you're going to do, you're, you'll habituate uh, and you'll end up with, uh, you know, it's like me and the Volvo. You have this one thing uh, that's new in your life, uh, but everything else is essentially the same. Yeah. So if, if we look just at the brain part of this, uh, your brain is constantly responding to cues in your environment. Right. And for all those cues, there are essentially habits or routines that your brain is executing at the unconscious level, uh, whether you're aware of them or not. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you can do is you can change enough of the cues in your environment such that um, such that you just start to process information differently. So there is a friend of mine. We you know, have this argument about whether or not there's any free will. And he makes this argument that even at the the neurobiological level, that people will always make the same decisions. Hmm. Let's say that that's true. Let's say that it's true that you can't ever, your neurons will always make the same decisions in a given environment. Okay. One of the things you can do is you can change your context. Sure. And by changing your context, you actually change all of the inputs. That's right. And so if you're stuck, right, um, and you don't know what to change, if you, say for example, say if you move to a different country or if you move to a different city, right. a city that you don't know. So instead of walking the same route to work or driving exactly. the same route to work, now you have to take in all this That's new right. information and your brain has to process yeah. it. This is, it's going to displace and create new neural pathways because this is new information. That's right. In the old way, you know, when you're driving to work at your old job, uh, your brain is already habituated to that. So it's going to go on automatic. That's right. You're running all these subroutines uh, at the unconscious level. But if you put yourself in an environment where you are forced to make new types of That's neural right. pathways, then all of a sudden things will start spinning up for you even on the inside. Yeah, you interrupt the pattern. Exactly. And so there is a way to change enough of your outside mm -hmm. such that you're just forcing yourself to change the inside. Yeah. Um, of course, you can also decide to change the inside as well, uh, but either of those paths, if, if you can do it. Um, so if, if you've ever been on, in fact, you have been on vacation, I'm sure, where you're in a, you're in a foreign land. Yeah. And the money is different and the food is different and a week feels like two weeks and two weeks feel like a month. Part of that, right, part of why it's just people like, oh, I'm going to go on vacation for two weeks and they come back, they're exhausted. Right. But the amount of data that your brain has That's crunched right. in that time, new landscapes, figuring things out, where the hotel is, where the bus is, all That's this right. kind of stuff. Right. Your brain has done two weeks worth of work in only a couple of days. Yeah. Um, That's a great example. And yeah, and I, I, I just think that there is a way to make internal changes by changing the external environment. But you have to make a lot of external yeah. changes. Yeah, yeah. And being, yeah, very cognizant of these exter external changes not matching what you typically would would know. Right. And, you know, you're in solution mode, right? Like, how right. do I do this? How do I do that? That's right. Um, so, but, you know, I mean, I, I guess there's... So that's the, the kind of psychological way that you would interrupt mm -hmm. um, all of those cues and the habits and the, the kind of routines that follow. Um, there are people who, who are also dedicated to just changing from the inside. Yeah. And so whether it's mindfulness or meditation or, you know, rosary or anything like that, there are also some internal ways that you, you can interrupt that narrative. 
uh, and be really kind of mindful without the outside necessarily changing all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for sure you have to want some kind of change. And the internal story, the internal narrative, because um, I was asking, how do you even know if you, if you want to change it? Um, I think probably you have to get to a point in your life where you can see that things are disrupted enough exactly. that something needs to shift. Yeah, and I like to continue to you know, help people make those changes and make those shifts uh, in their own lives mm-hmm. so that uh, you know, we can start changing our, our collective narrative together. Yeah, that sounds great. For Heterodex Americana, this is Raphael Freeman. And this is Angie Backus. And uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, we'll see you thanks. next time. See ya.